This is the 3D Pod, your number one source for 3D printing news, analysis, and insight from 3dprint.com. Now, here are your hosts, Joris Peels and Maxwell Bogue. Hello, everyone. My name is Joris Peels, and uh, I'm here again with Maxwell Vogue. Hi, Max. How are you doing? I'm good. How are you doing, Joris? Yeah, I'm good. I'm good. All things considered, I'm good. And uh, and yeah, today very excited uh, because we've got uh, Alexander Ulster on board with us today as our guest. And Alexander, I've known for yeah, quite a while, a while already. From when I was looking for, uh, I used to work for Shapeways, and we were looking for online pricing tools for 3D prints. And there was only one we could find. There was two, and then one of them was written by Alexander, who got started in 3D printing at a very young age, and he used to work for Profit. Charlie Fruits uh, um, uh, online service or service bureau, which is one of the largest service bureaus in the world. Then he ended up writing a pricing tool for that company, and that ended up morphing into Netfab. Netfab itself was uh, later on acquired uh, by Autodesk, and it's a, a tool that you can use to nest your builds, to repair files, to to you know for your generally 3D printing workflow, especially on the industrial side. So yeah, welcome on board, Alex. Well, thank you for having me. Right now, you head up additive manufacturing at Autodesk, right? What does that mean? What does that entail? Yeah, what does it entail? Um, I mean, Autodesk, just to give everybody an overview, so we are one of the four large CAD companies and do everything from um, software for designing huge skyscrapers, designing car designs that you see on the streets, um, and designing consumer products and highway systems and all kinds of scales and we have hundreds of products and within that I'm responsible for additive manufacturing in the Fusion 360 product group for the product development. We are, okay. we are integrating a lot of additive manufacturing, manufacturing capabilities into Fusion 360 at the moment and uh, connecting it to our specialist tools like Palmer for DD and NetFab that I can restore the desk uh, for the, the powder bed systems um, in order to make streamlined workflows possible from CAD to CAD. And, and Fusion 360 itself for the uninitiated, it's kind of like WeChat for CAD, right? Or what, 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 what would you say, how would you describe <laughs> Fusion 360 or? <laughs> Yeah, Fusion 360 is an amazing product, and I'm actually really happy that I uh, that 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 Autodesk is really putting all their weight into getting all the manufacturing capabilities that somebody needs into one product and connect it with CAD in an integrated environment. And I think uh, Autodesk has no other company has gone as far and as deep as as we have, and um, um, it's not only that we did it, but we also did it in a way that even I can use it. So when we when we when we started this project, um, I knew very little about CAD, and I have learned so much the last three four years. But the the level of accessibility that Fusion brings to the market in terms of CAD is, in my opinion, something that a lot of people don't appreciate yet. Because even I, after two hours of training, could do my own sketches and could do my own extrusions and could do my own designing of everyday products. And then I could 3D print them. I have a CAM module that I can uh, that I can CNC them. I can do FEA simulations of linear, non-linear type, um, even event simulation. I, I really enjoy the part library aspect of it. I use uh, Fusion 360. Uh, I also enjoy the fact that it runs on a Mac. 
So that's... Um, it, it's, it's a fun ride because I don't know if you know the history. Autodesk acquired a lot of companies. So Netflip only was one of them. I think there are at least 15 companies in the manufacturing space since 2008. Um, so for example, Moldflow, I think, was the first one that was really acquired that has deep, that has deep manufacturing knowledge. And that, I mean, Moldflow is an, a simulation tool for for injection molding. So if you do product design, you usually want to make sure that you're that the designs you're making are then manufacturable on an ejection molding machine and also cheaply manufactured. And that is where the mode flow is the lighthouse group. But um, yeah. in addition to that, we acquired companies that did uh, composite design and sheet metal nesting and um, Daycam, which was one of the biggest acquisitions, um, which is one of the most high-end scam systems on the market. So you can drive robots uh, up to 22 axes and you can do high-end machining and um, all kinds of high-end crazy manufacturing things in this tool. And what then came all together is that we can extract, we have the freedom to extract all this high-end uh, functions from the specialist tools and then bring it to the mass market on a platform like Fusion 360, which is $500 per year to enter for the commercial user. So I think that is an amazing opportunity for the whole industry to really democratize the way how product development is done. And I think it, it has a huge success. So everywhere I go, everybody loves Fusion 360 because it's just nice to, nice to get. So, it's a powerful CAD system, it's a powerful CAM system, and it's a powerful additive system and a powerful um, simulation system and everything in one uh, package. And is it really made for a world where we all work in different companies and we all work together remotely and that kind of thing? Is that, is that the kind of world you're making this for? Or? Yeah, so it's cloud first. Um, so mm -hmm. so it's, it's, a very, it's a different departure from the traditional CAD systems. Um, um, which means it is a named user licensing model. So you don't have to install a license server and run it in your company, but you have a, a named user, you log on, like, like Office 365. So you log on, you get access to the software, you can use it, and all your data can be stored on the cloud, which means you can collaborate uh, over the internet. And we have a lot of customers that sit on different continents, especially in these, I mean, in, in this year, it just has, come out how powerful this cloud model of access anywhere and um, and use the software anywhere is because you basically if you had a, if you were a fusion 360 user you could just go into home office and you could just continue your work without any big issues mm -hmm. so you said you weren't a cad guy because actually you you actually the, the one thing you are is a ping pong guy right because that's how you got started in this industry right <laughs> oh yes the story is by the way not correct that you told that you oh, really? in your other podcast they think you it's it's correct but it's only you only part of you only tell us the correct version then yeah. so the correct version yeah. I got in history. it's actually really funny so i when i was a kid i did a lot of programming and i, I played in the local ping pong club with a guy named Carl Fruit that you also know. And Carl used to own, and it's in the middle of Bavaria, so, um, like northern Bavaria, so it's not, not uh, it's very industrial, but it's not like the center of the world. And he used to have this little 3D printing service bureau, which already at the time was was the one of the largest in Germany, one, one of the largest in Germany, but it didn't take much to be one of the largest 3D printing bureaus in Germany. It was like 98, I think. And and he was the first, he was the, I think the first application engineer at the US. Yeah. 
and um, he quit over um, frustration that the machines didn't work at the time, which, I mean, you always say that the consumer machines didn't work when you bought them in like, in like the yeah. beginning. But like yeah, in the two, like in the end of yeah. the 90s, the, the, the industrial machines also didn't work better. They just cost $500,000 to purchase. So right. the frustration yeah. you had if you wanted to print parts or just different areas. And um, so he, he left and started his own service business to really leverage the technology for, for building a real business out of it. And he wanted to build his own machine at the time. He, he asked me if I could write him some firmware and play with lasers. And I think I was 15 at the time and it was really exciting to play with lasers. I think we printed parts. It was an SLA machine first and then we did a sheet lamination machine second. Um, and it worked somehow, but in the end, of course, uh, the industrial companies like EOS just improved the technology in such a rapid pace that it was much more it was much more suitable for him to buy machines from commercial vendors and then and then buy up and then build up the the, the IP of how to run the machines um, and not build the machines himself. So that's why he he didn't continue that project. But then we had all these quoting problems you talked about, and then because that is a software problem, we pivoted to, oh, can we do automatic quoting and, and nesting and build, build packing and all these kind of things. But meanwhile, so it was like your kind of vacation job kind of thing, it grew out until a full-time job or how did this work? Did you yeah, do it yeah, next yeah. to your studies or? Yeah, it was, it was on and off, so it was not full-time, but um, I, I, earned, I earned my money through the, through, the radios, through the studies and it was a good thing for everybody. But, and then after, and then when I was finished, we started the company, and then we hired people to to develop the code. And and you always say that I wrote so much of it, which is not so true. I, we were, I was one of the first people, your first customers. <laughs> yes, yeah, so there weren't that many other people. was our big breakthrough, I have to say. Yeah. Um, so we did this in-house software, and and actually we did something else. So what we did is we did the software, but the, the long story also tells a lot of the industry, so it's probably worth mentioning it. So a Kalfruit is somebody who always buys the first machine of anything. It's <laughs> so true, dude. He's everyone's so launch customer. <laughs> yes, and I think, I mean, this is a win-win situation because usually the machine vendors know themselves that the machine, the first machines they develop, they don't really work that well. So they don't want to sell it to a corporation or a customer that would be really critical of when it doesn't work. So they find a very patient customer and somebody who's really willing to put energy into making it work and developing the technology. And then Carl Fruit gets his favorite thing out of it. So he gets a cheap price in the first place, but then he also gets the <laughs> early, then he gets the early starter know-how um, that, that, that needs years to build up how the, how the, how the, it needs years to find out how a machine behaves and, and, and how you really earn money with the technology. Because this is the one thing, if you buy a metal machine from a machine vendor and then build like little, um, little cubes for material testing and little, uh, little pieces where you do strength testing and all these kind of things. And this is what large companies often make as a problem, uh, as, as a mistake. They make these huge uh, validation programs for the technology that when you can spend an arbitrary amount of research money on these things. And after five years, you find out that you need five more years to because you have some open questions. Um, and that is why a lot of 
large companies are failing to implement the technology because they are not so you know, like revenue driven. But, but if you're a small and medium enterprise and buy a machine that costs a lot of money and then you need to pay off the machine, then you have a lot of different incentives to actually do everything you need to make it work. And that's where Charlie is really one of the perfect examples. I mean, probably the, the best example I know who can turn this on, uh, who can turn this around. For example, um, I think this month he is, he's, he's installing the first powder bed concrete printer on the world that is commercially available and goes into construction. Mm. So I'm very interested how that turns out to be. But at the time it was the EBM system from Arkham. So we had the first on the, on the world, actually the second, I think, but the, the first one was a Desert Research Institute. So they printed cubes and tensile bars. So he was the first one who really wanted to, um, to use it for, for business. And that was 2003 or four. And at the time, he already used metal machines from EOS. Um, I don't know if you remember, but they they used uh, they they couldn't they didn't have the laser power to really make metal, so they were called DMLS, which is laser centering, yeah. which which melted out uh, copper alloy. And then he did he was quite successful in doing injection molding, and that's what that was the pitch of Arcam, that he could do injection molding tools with a real material. So he bought this machine and the machine was delivered and installed. And then we ran it for a week. And then we found out that you can do a lot of things with this machine, but you can't do injection molding tools. So we needed yeah, something yeah. else to earn money. And, and, and that was um, the, the medical field. So because this machine ran in a vacuum with an electron beam, we could actually um, make a real pure titanium parts and that was not possible with any other technology at the time so we tried to do implants and when you do implants the first obvious thing is you don't want to print them solid but you want to print them like bone like and that is where actually netfab came from and and we tried to sell it and we got like two customers or so um and the, the issue with these two customers was that you, they, they worked on sdl file so you imported an sdl file and then if a triangle was missing like all the other problems that happened. So if there was a triangle missing, then the software crashed. It just didn't even say an error message. I think it just crashed. And we sold the software for thirty-five thousand dollars or something. So <laughs> that was a <laughs> was a difficult uh, customer call because basically you had to go back and said, "Hey, why don't you buy this other software for another fifteen k in order to fix this one triangle?" So the first thing we added is um, um, mesh repair functionality that people could do related structures on parts that were not perfect. And that was that was the entrance into into this file fixing thing and so on. And you know, because we didn't have any marketing budget, I convinced Charlie that we give away a free version that could do everything we had except the latticing. Because the latticing we sold for thirty five thousand dollars uh, to get some marketing out of it. And that's how we got in contact with Shapeways at the time. And Shapeways then based all of the, that was, I mean, I'm still very unbelievably thankful to, to, to Peter Weibershausen and Robert Schoenberg that they trusted us in that sense. Um, yeah. They could really build up their production facility. Um, and it was, it was a huge learning for us and it really helped us to build a product that was, uh, was, was stable enough and, and, and worked. I mean, they had like millions of parts a year. Um, just curious how long it took you guys to get the software once it was in Shapeways, like really stable and, and good at doing its job of pricing and whatnot. 
Uh, so we had a, I think we, we had a year. Yeah. No, I mean, we had a software that was reasonably good. So we had the free software and we, I mean, FIT also made 100,000 parts a year and we also used it in FIT. So we already had the industrial user base. Um, the difference was that Shapeface was consumer focused. So right. the kind of parts that were uploaded were really crappy compared to if you export yeah, it from a Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and that, that gave us a lot of headaches. And we, we added a lot, of, uh, a lot of interesting repair functionality. And so this was like 2011. Mm. And this was interestingly the same time when this consumer 3D printing hype started. And that was then our next big thing because if you bought a Makerbot and so on, so we, we, we didn't do, we did do two things. One, we had this, so, and we explored a lot of technologies. So we, we had the, the desktop version and then we had a cloud service, which basically did the same thing uh, pretty automatically. You could upload a file, it would give you an image. Um, and we also had an iPhone app that, and an Android app that you could view your parts and then press a button and it uploaded the part to the cloud, repaired it, downloaded it. So this was all very nice. That was at the same time when this, um, when this, when this consumer hype really got off. So MakerBot got off. That was the first. And I also heard in your podcast that you're very critical of Bree, but I think he has a lot of merit for the whole industry. Yeah, I mean, I'm critical ethically. I'm very critical. Uh, I think they, they really messed over a lot of people, screwed over a lot of people, used a lot of people. It was it was pure socio, sociopathic behavior. But what I say to everyone is like, if you now drive a Volkswagen Passat, you would be driving a Golf without Bree. Right. So I do, yeah, I do recognize that he made the whole industry bigger. The whole curve was lifted by him. So yeah, I understand. And, and also the awareness. That was really something interesting happening because, um, mm -hmm. and we saw that in industrial world too. I mean, and we were, by, by very much accident, and thanks to Shapeways, we were very at the center of this because everybody who bought a MakerBot had crappy SDL files. So what these mm -hmm. people did is they Googled for how to fix SDL files. And at that time, there were several companies who did this, and I won't mention names, but there were several companies who did this. But there was always this divide. But there was still this divide of the viewers were always free. And then if you wanted to change one triangle, you had to pay $10,000. And then there was the Netflix pre version that could do all, like, all this stuff free. So everybody used it. So we were quickly very well known um, inside, the, inside this, this low end space. And it was even funnier because, um, I mean, we had, some, we had some analytics who uploaded files and you needed to give an email address to get the results sent back. And I think our top customer was makeabot.com on the service. <laughs> so because, because the service department, I think, if they got a wrong file, they just uploaded it to a cloud service. And then they recommended this fixing service to, um, to their customers. So that's, we grew quite a bit. And also Shapebase recommended and the desktop version to the customers. And that was all very positive. And this was like 2013 or so. And then we started to collaborate with the machine vendors of the printing manufacturers to do software. I don't know if you remember that, George, that we, yeah. we had an Ultimaker version at the time. Yeah. And we sold so many, we sold it for 100 euros and we sold so many seats. It was unbelievable. Mm -hmm. And, um, it was, it was really one of the first softwares that could quickly generate a tool pass for 3D printing and a lot of people used it. The, the issue, it was that the hype time was so big that, that Charlie decided that this is something he wants to jump on. So we did our own 3D printer. That was a kind of a strategic, <laughs> mis 
<laughs> that was kind of a strategic mistake because, of course, that didn't make us the best friends of the. I told you, I told you it was a mistake as well, but it was the most insane. I actually, I, I, I actually want to do an entire episode on the sprinter because it's the most amazing thing. Because I mean, commercially, he has a lot of ideas, but he, I mean, the, yeah, yeah. the development of the open source community has, yeah. of course, completely overruled it, and yeah, so, and it was just no, a kit to assemble. And I think we sold yeah. fifteen hundred or so of them, so it was not, yeah. it was not like a complete disaster commercially, but it was. Uh, so essentially, like fused deposition modeling is like a filament-based technology. So how do you completely uh, ignore the patent or go around it? You'll love this, Max. You you end up having a little complicated system of sticks, <laughs> and these little sticks are conveyed, <laughs> conveyed together, and then kind of like on a pinion, one above the other, or in a series, make kind of a line of sticks. And this line of sticks is then melted and printed, and then it's not FDM. <laughs> The good thing was the good thing was we had all these injection machines in the company so we could so we could 3d print a uh, tool it, that made right. these sticks and we could then use any injection molding tool that it's not so easy to extrude in a film. but it also spawned yeah. it also because we we went then to this printer it was very clear that it maker for example needed to develop their own software and that's for example how Kira was born so did this printer ever actually reach market or did you it did it yeah, yeah they sold it, but i should have bought one damn it yeah what yeah, was it called, called? fabster it was called fabster yeah fabster fabster yeah, uh, uh. yeah don't get me on this story but i'm very interesting exercise we did the firmware <laughs> and everything in the spec so that was it was very interesting and, but we also collaborated, for example, with Bits from Bytes and did the software for them. Generally, I think I think the Bits from Bytes team does deserve a lot more. They don't get a lot of attention compared to a lot of the other guys. And I do think they, just by having that extra offering in there and by having the kits available, that education focus and stuff like that, uh, yeah. and having and all the work they did in the evangelism, it made yeah later RepRap more possible. I think yeah, in all the narrative, I think the guys, the, the Bits from Bytes guys and also the Fab at Home guys are the ones that kind of like don't get enough credit generally. Yes. Uh, so yeah, totally with you on that. So, uh, that, uh, that from bits and bytes of stuff. But uh, that's that's how we went into this low end space, and um, and we did quite well. Then we had a software called Netfab Professional, which was a few hundred dollars, and that sold pretty well. Um, and then something very amazing happened for us. I mean, I still remember the day. Um, and the funny thing is. So if you, it's all Bill Gates' fault. So he's not only responsible for inventing the, 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 the COVID virus, but he also was at the time, he also was at the time, he was chief innovation officer of um, Microsoft. And oh, the Zero thing. <laughs> yeah. And he made, he made this, um, he made this, uh, I mean, I only heard that from third parties that, Heard it, but he made this list of the of five or ten technologies that Microsoft should be aware of, and 3D printing was one of them. So Microsoft did what every large company does if it's somebody so high up says something like this. So they built like an incubation group where they looked in 3D printing, and they did an amazing job there. They were just super committed, and they made Windows a real platform for 3D printing. And they looked around in this in this industry and wanted to know more about about what these people are doing and how these machine vendors that are coming, popping up everywhere are working. And, and they found that all of these companies were like three people companies that didn't know a thing about software, but they used this open source piece and these other things. And then they worked with this commercial software called NetFab. 
And it seems that everywhere they went, they had this, um, they got similar answers. So at some point I was sitting in my Northern Bavarian office, I got this call from Redmond and they asked me if I could just travel to Seattle and have a discussion. And so we went there and we, we discussed with them what we could do together. And it was very, it, they were just so good to us. They taught us so much about how to properly develop code and what quality assurance is. And, and I mean, the things you need to learn if you do something. Um, and that led them to the creation of this RIMF consortium where, because, because they couldn't work with SDL files in Windows when they print a file, if you, if you put it through the print pipeline. Um, they just couldn't, it doesn't just, it just doesn't have enough data richness in order to, um, to be, to be processed in a real spooler printer system that they wanted to build. So they, they basically created uh, a very, very well-made uh, specification um, how to deal with 3D data in such a context. And that is what became 3MF. Um, and then at the same time, there was this big regime change where Satya Nadella came to power inside, inside Microsoft. And then from one day to the next, suddenly everything was open source. And they seized the moment to create the open source consortium and invited all these other machine vendors and CAD vendors and, and, and ecosystem providers like Shapebase also and made the format public and made code public to, to, uh, to make people adopt it. And, um, and that's what we announced, I think, to a lot of CAD companies. It's very, very quickly evolves into some, oh, can't we just purchase this little software piece uh, discussions? And that's what happened then. So that's we ended up at Autodesk. I was just saying, it's fascinating to hear the evolution of it all and to see where it, you know, it came through because it has been a running string through the whole 3D print industry, you know, especially in terms of getting companies to be able to quote online and all that um, before you do the printing and printer farm. So it's all, yeah, I, I found it interesting. It's, it's quite interesting, actually. What I like is that I was talking to a friend of mine uh, just yesterday, and he's looking for a print farm software to 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 run his print farm. He still can't find anything that really meets his needs. <laughs> so we're kind of back to where everybody started, I think. But um, but talk to us a little bit more about 3MF. So why is 3MF so important? Because uh, you're the technical advisor uh, for, for 3MF or the chief technical advisor. I'm not sure what the title is exactly, but so talk to us a little bit why 3MF is important to, to for me as a user or for me as a company in this industry. 3MF has, has many, many uh, different, different use cases. But I mean, the first reason is we wanted to have an SDA replacement that is solid. Uh, because SDL had a lot of problems and the key, the, I mean, the key reasons why a company like Netflix exists is it's such a basic format that only it's like a triangular. When you have that, then you have a lot of unclear, unclear things if you, if you open it because it doesn't necessarily create a shape that, that can, that it can read print. And this added function, this added, or this needed information like the surface topology, like things that, what is the support structure, what is the solid of the part, how you can instance parts and have the same part multiple times on a build tray and then what, store it, the data twice or three or 20 times. And these are all very basic things that are very nicely specified in this RMF format. And it also guarantees from the data model that, that there are no 
that there are no like STL-like surface defect. And, and and this is for triangular format. So this is STL replacement. What it also does is it, it, it has additional extensions that serve other use cases. Um, and so the base format is an STL replacement. But then, if, for example, if you have an OBJ or URML file, and that is what JBase has every day, this problem. And these are rendering formats and not manufacturing formats. So if you have color printing, you somehow want to transport the color data to the printer. But if you have a rendering format like OBJ and so on, um, that has that has notions like light and fog and all these kind of things um, in the format, and then you have a part that has a red light shining, a white sphere that where a, a red light shines on. Um, then the question quickly arises, do you want to print it uh, white or do you print it red? Because on your rendering screen, it's shown in red, but then if you print it, you get it white. So you have all these kind of like negotiation problems. Um, and the reason is because it's just not made for manufacturing, it's made for rendering. So one extension solves that problem and it also solves the problem that you have a VRM file and then 20 different JPEGs that are the surface textures of your model and, and 3MF is just the, the craftsmanship of, of the implementation and definition is just made right that it works well and you have one file that contains everything. Um, and this is just important that, to make things work in a way. And, and people, and then we have different extensions. So we have a beam lattice extension, we have like two paths, getting out these two pass extensions, um, curve triangles are in the making and volumetric extensions. So it will be very nice once we, once we get out there. That is just a very, very important engineering work that needs to be done in order to mature. Similar to PDFs, I mean, if you don't have a well-defined well PDF format, 2D printing would look much different. And if we're looking at the, the whole tool chain from authoring to, to the actual, well, let's say quality assurance kind of steps, everything in between. I mean, okay, the file type is letting, like we were, we're missing a lot of the functionality that we, we do have in like, if we were to compare ourselves to the 2D print world. What are some other critical things you think need to be addressed or, or are being addressed? I think it's very clear that the data preparation piece, in my opinion, will split up itself between the CAD system and then there will be a transport to the, um, to the printer and the printer will have the, the, the lower end of the tail and then the CAD system will do out all the up, uh, upfront data preparation. So even if, if my heart is really uh, very much pro NetFab, I think a software like NetFab will go away. Okay. Uh, so you, so the file is perfect from authoring, right? That's the idea, and, and printable from authoring, and maybe even you can simulate from the moment of authoring. Yes, everything will move into the CAD system, and I know that there are different people saying this is different. So we can just put a CAD kernel on the printer and then we yeah. can print CAD files. I think, and I know so much now about the problems that CAD file formats and CAD file format conversion have. Mm. It is very dangerous and difficult to do this. So in my opinion, all the upfront information will move to the CAD system and do the preparation there. And because you also can, because you also need it, because if you have version control on the CAD model and all these mm -hmm. kind of things, that all needs to be managed upfront. And what is mm -hmm. important is that the data is compressed and specified in a way that there is no ambiguity from this moment on. Mm -hmm. So there will mm -hmm. be obvious bugs in CAD systems that the export is wrong and so on. But there shouldn't be there shouldn't be uh, ambiguity from a certain moment on. There shouldn't be an ambiguity. What happens on the printer? And the printer may interpret it 
and so on. This is really a long process until you go to, especially with color and all multi-material and polychat, this will be a long mm -hmm. way because, uh, yeah. I mean, in the 2D world, it took decades until people specified what green, how green a green really is. And that's, mm -hmm. what, that's what we need to do for 3D also. And then we have not only color, but we also have translucency, multi-materials and all these kind of things. And that mm -hmm. need, needs to be specified in a way that when you press the render button in the CAD system, it needs to look exactly in the same way as it looks on the printer when it comes out. And that's why mm -hmm. we need a format like StreamF that can transport this mess, uh, this, this, uh, all this information without mm -hmm. overloading all this complexity to the printer. Because mm -hmm. if you overload, if you make the printer do too much, first of all, it's very difficult to then have control over what happens from a manageable environment. That's one thing. And the other thing is, um, especially in the, in the desktop world or so on, it don't even have the capacity to do kind of mm -hmm. I'm super amazed by the adoption that we're getting with StreamF. Um, I, I don't, I mean, it's, we have tons of products supporting it. Um, software like Cura um, or, or, or Slicer from, from Prusa Slicer, they use it as native project format now and also in the higher end we have a lot of uh, applicability in very different aspects so. and do you think i think one, one thing i've always like kind of spoken for is this whole sdna the stuff dna idea the idea of also having authoring information version information but also uh you know kind of information about what the rights are of this object and stuff embedded in the object do you, you see kind of things like that because with an xml based type format you could add a lot of that stuff in there is that something you you foresee yeah, happening as well there is some interest in doing like um, content protection and these kind of things. Mm -hmm. um, right. I'm a bit split on the, I mean, it hasn't worked so well for the music industry, to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> it's a bit, of, a bit of an understatement there, Alex. <laughs> yes, but, but having said that, I mean, there are a lot of industrial use cases where we really want content protection, which means if you print your medical data, for example, in 3D, you better have an end-to-end -end encryption in place that protects your content. So I think they're very valid, like non, we make, uh, we make uh, the content firms more rich uh, scenarios that, that, that will definitely play out there. But I think the industry is not major enough that this would be a mainstream thing. Well, you, can you do versioning with this system? Like, you know, mm -hmm. so you could roll back changes or roll forward changes without, within the same file? Yeah, it's not versioning, it's more about the identification. So you basically right. know exactly where the file came from and then you can approach another file and so I mean, this is all not rocket science. This is all just good engineering practice. And how do you see the future of the industry evolving? I mean, <clears throat> just as, as in terms of software and stuff, I mean, what do you see as some other things that you think should be tackled or, or some things you, you want to, to happen? I, I'm really standing behind the strategy and people, I. I think people are not seeing that yet. They think Fusion is a nice free CAD system or a low-cost CAD system. But the manufacturing capabilities that are already in, and not only manufacturing capabilities, I mean, Autodesk also bought Eagle, for example, Autodesk Eagle, and Matt Berkrin is now heading, I don't know if you know him, but he's now heading the, um, the, the electronics development in Fusion. And this is just an amazing integrated thing. And if you, you can, you have on the one window, you have your board schematics, and then on the other window, you have your 3D enclosure design. And if you then change the layout of your board, it will automatically update the, the enclosure and the, the 3D, the 3D view of your board. And the other way around, if you, if you want to have a, like a, a 
if you change your mounting holes on the on the electronic side in 3D and on the mechanics, then it will automatically reflect back into the into into the schematics. And these associative workflows are just so powerful. Um, and then it goes further, then it will automatically update the CNC operations for middle the board, it will automatically update the 3D print operations that are necessary to print the enclosure. And this is just so powerful and so accessible and so easy to use that I think this is a big, big game changer from our perspective. And this together with the democratization of the technology um, will lead to, it, it, it will lead to a lot of developments that are not foreseeable now from, uh, from, uh, from a market perspective. So there will be always the high end and the aerospaces of the world and the, the medical uh, certified production that we have today. But I think we will see in every technology, we will see a major disruption in terms of democratization. And we have seen this with Formlabs at SLA and we have seen it in FDM with this massive hype. But I think it will come with SLS, um, for example, Synthera yeah. and, and the others, they are doing an amazing job in making it accessible. Um, but also yeah. it will happen in metal, many different ways. And then it will mm -hmm. be a accessible, reachable technology platform that you can really use if you, even if you don't print, or not say if you don't print, but you don't need to print 5,000 parts of a certain kind in order to be commercially viable, which is probably, which is by the way, not a good idea because th this is exactly not the, this, the space where additive is commercially viable if you need to print a lot of them to a lot of parts to be successful. But if you if you have cheaper machines, more accessible machines that that then also don't matter if they don't run 50% of the time and you still can make parts cheap um, with a good quality, I think that is where it will go. And you skip around the consumer because there is the there is still this this opportunity of you know for example all iPhones become 3D scanners, right? Or uh, somebody will develop a CAD thing that everyone can, a CAD software that everyone can use. Yeah, I mean, we have still... CAD, so it's already almost there. So, um, mm -hmm. and it is, I think, on a consumer space, and that's also where we put the Fabster, by the way. So we wanted to sell the Fabster in the, at the time. Mm -hmm. We wanted to sell it in not in the, not in the electronics markets, but in the home depots of the world. Mm -hmm. It will be it will be a tool like a drilling machine, in my opinion, and a lot of mm -hmm. people will use it. A lot of people are using it today, and it's amazing. And it, mm -hmm. I mean, um, that will certainly have its place, but I, I personally don't believe that it will really displace. It will really bring mass manufacturing to the home. I mean, Brepet is sold this at the time to have this. Um, this Star Trek replicator that everybody makes his own thing, and that's how he attracted mm -hmm. all this attention. Um, but I think this is more the dream. Manufacturing is still a hard business, so it, it, won't, it won't get it won't be for the for the consumer. Yeah, I still I still do believe that with a couple of machine generations, I see how hard it got or fast at developing. I think we could get at something. I think the bigger problem is what are people going to make and what are they going to be inspired to make? Um, and how do we channel their, their creativity? I, do, I still do believe that it could be possible to, to, to have real low cost systems that, that work very well. I mean, Max has sold millions of his pens as well. I mean, that's, you know, the, there is demand. Yeah, no, no, that, don't get me wrong. I mean, there will be a place for it. It just <laughs> won't replace the iPhone. That's what I'm saying. 
Okay, okay. Okay. All right. That's fair. That's fair. All right, guys. Um, so thank you very much again uh, for this episode of the 3D yeah. Pod. Um, I was here today with uh, Maxwell Vogue uh, and uh, also with Alexander Oster. Thank you for having me. And uh, yeah, thank you so much for listening to us, guys. Uh, my name is Joris Peels, and this is another episode of the 3D Pod. Thank you so much. You've been listening to the 3D Pod. For more information on what you just heard or to subscribe, visit www.3dprint.com or follow us at 3dprint underscore com.